All right, everyone, welcome back to the Second Shot All-American Golf Podcast. I am your host, Tom, as always here with my co-host, Phil. Phil, how are you today? Tom, I am good. I'm excited about this next interview and ready to get it rolling. Just like last week, I think we're going to get right into it with our guest here. He is a board member of the GCGA, as well as the author of a new book coming out late this summer called Golf Reaches the Seven Hills. Mr. Gary Lanham. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate being here. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. If you could just give us a little background about, you know, your background in golf as well as your, you know, your inspiration for writing the book. Well, I uh, caddied at uh, Clovernook Country Club many, 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 many years ago and uh, uh, left the game for a while and kind of bounced back and forth between golf and tennis and Finally got interested in golf about 20 years ago and and uh, more on a day-to-day basis and trying to play as much as I can. I'm now a senior and, and uh, you know, trying to keep my handicap manageable and having a lot more fun at it right now. Never did play competitively, just uh, always, you know, all around town. Play at Makatiwa now. And what was the, uh, what was your inspiration for uh, starting the book? Well, a couple of things. I've always kind of been a history buff. And I, you know, when I was in high school, happened to be around the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, and there was just loads of history being put out then. And I kind of fell in love with history. And uh, even though I became an engineer, it was always uh, when I bought books, I always bought history books and biographies and things like that. I was always interested in that. And then when it became uh, time for me to get uh, going with golf, it was seemed like a natural, uh, you know, uh, marriage of the two. And uh, a couple things happened. I was uh, down at the uh, driving range on uh, Kellogg Avenue with my grandkids, and uh, the young man behind the counter had a Highlands Country Club hat on. And uh, I said, "Oh, Johnny Fisher, Highlands Country Club," and he didn't know uh, who Johnny Fisher was. And uh, maybe most people don't know who he is, but they're going to know if they read the book and how important he was to Cincinnati. And uh, I also uh, later on met his son, John Fisher III, who still is a member at Cincinnati Country Club and member of the USGA History Committee and started reading some of his uh, blogs and um, really got turned on to this whole subject of, uh, of doing a Cincinnati history. Um, but first started out doing the Makatiwa history. We did a, had a Makatiwa history con, uh, committee. Alex Roger and Dave Barr got that going and and uh, found out some neat stuff about our place and uh, found out about digitized newspapers and all of the new things. You know, I don't have to go back in the old microfiche machine and crank it out there and try to find old newspapers. And um, it was just a good time, good timing with the technology, good timing with the history and good timing with 
mind having time to do it. So uh, worked out great. Can you kind of get into the process you had to take during your research? Was most of this research done at the clubs with the archives there, or was this something you had to go to local libraries for? That's a great question, Phil, because really what we found out, and I'm going to say we because I'll talk a little bit about Joff Hensley in a minute, but uh, what we found out is that the clubs really don't have a lot of information anymore, including Makatiwa. Uh, a lot of them had clubhouses burned down in the 1920s. You know, I've more than you would want to know, you know, probably eight or 10 clubhouses burnt down one time or another. Uh, but, you know, clubhouses get redecorated, you know, committees come in and take over. People just throw away papers when, you know, they start to build up and there really are not a whole lot of archive sources out there anymore. So most of the stuff we had to do was newspapers, magazines, uh, going through some of the uh, Ohio Golf Association, some of the other sources to get the materials to build the book. And uh, unfortunately, we have some information from courses that is deeper than others. And uh, that's because they did keep their records. <laughs> you know, we had more to go for them. But uh, it's uh, going to be interesting for whoever writes the sequel to our book because the, the book goes till 1960. So um, now you have newspapers that really don't print too much information anymore. You know, when I went into a 1920 paper, I could find the golf scores for everybody for that, you know, for the whole week. You know, if you and I were playing, our scores would have been in there. So um, there was just a lot more information available. But that's what we had to use mostly was newspapers. And I didn't really touch on it earlier. So it's from 1890 through about 1960 for the book, correct, in terms of the history that's covered? That's correct, Tom. We uh, we picked really what was called the classic period for golf. And uh, in 1960, we started the modern period. And uh, that was a good place for us to, you know, to make, make the break because uh, uh, we have in our book, Jack Nicholas is an amateur. And, uh, you know, Arnold Palmer was just starting out. And all the pictures are in black and white. You know, there's no uh, very few color photographs back before then, and no color TV. And so it was a it was a good place to make a break, and um, uh, it also allowed us to be able to uh, kind of focus on the how it went with Cincinnati history. And that, that's another part of the book is Cincinnati history and how golf and and those two things uh, intertwined. Now, when you were researching. What exactly were you looking for? Were you looking for golf artifacts? Were you looking for the original map layouts for the design? What what were some of the things you were looking for? And then I'll have another question to back that up. Okay, well, we have, there's 13 chapters in the book and 13 chapters include the, the great amateurs, the great professionals, the uh, uh, architects and superintendents and builders of the courses caddies, equipment. So we kind of touch on every really facet of the game. And uh, what would happen, uh, Phil, is we would, you know, basically start to uh, pull a string, you know, of someone would tell us about someone. Uh, I'd finish the amateur chapter, for instance, and send it over to Mr. Fisher to review. And he said, well, you're, you forgot Roger McManus. And uh, how could I forget him, you know? And it, but it was just a matter of at some point in time, I, I didn't have that string to pull. 
And once I pulled that string, then it opened up a whole lot more information about, you know, a pretty great player that I would have missed. So um, um, I did mostly look for people to start. You know, I'd put a name in or I'd put a course in or I'd put an event in like U.S. Open or U.S. Amateur and then see what happened with Cincinnati matched up with it. And uh, so lots of strings, lots of different uh, directions. And, and uh, there was more information than uh, I had about 110,000 words at the beginning. I've got it down to about 60,000. So <laughs> there's a lot of <laughs> there was enough, you know, just to keep writing and uh, uh, trying to just make it succinct and, and uh, you know, valuable to the reader. Say during this research, how much information just jumped out at you and you just had to sit back and say, wow, like what were some of the things that just blew you off your feet? Well, I think, you know, again, going back to the city history, there was a lot of things happening in Cincinnati in, in that period of time in 1890 and a lot of things going on in the United States. And uh, uh, not to get too far off subject, but, you know, it was called the progressive period. It was Teddy Roosevelt and it was, you know, the, the telephone and, and airplanes and all of these new things being invented. And it was an exciting time to be in American history. And all of a sudden this game shows up on the, on the Eastern seaboard that nobody knows, you know, about, uh, in 1890, I found the first article that was ever mentioned golf in a Cincinnati paper. And it, it was a, had something to do with a cartoon of a British newspaper. It had nothing to do with the game or anything else. And, you know, by 1960, uh, there's a hundred golf courses in Cincinnati, you know, so what happened to make all of that, you know, go through the depression, go through a couple world wars and everything else that, that allowed that game to, you know, make a foothold here. And, uh, uh, so to answer your question, it was, it was really starting to look at the city itself and who the people were and, uh, and then how they got the game going. And, uh, it eventually became, uh, you started off into country clubs because, you know, you, if you wanted to buy a 120 acre tract of land to put a course on, you weren't going to do it unless, uh, you know, the city was, you know, ready to invest the money and they weren't at that time or, you know, a group of people had to get together and, and uh, make it happen. So it, it took uh, almost 25 years before the first public course got built in the area. So, uh, so those, those kind of things, you know, and then you follow kind of a theme there, you know, with the, uh, the country clubs themselves, you know, became exclusive. So, uh, you know, you have a racial issue thing where uh, people didn't play in, you know, uh, uh, black people didn't play in the, in the Met until 1967. That's a long time, you know, from the game starting until, you know, Jimmy Woods was able to make it onto the first tee. And, and uh, so you have that aspect. You had the aspect of a a woman who was uh, an Irish immigrant who was basically kind of held out of the state tournament, you know, because of probably who she was. And uh, so there was a lot of things going on with the city. Uh, a lot of things going on with, uh, uh, like I said, depression and two world wars and all of this stuff. And yet the game succeeded. And that's a pretty neat story. And you touched on it briefly there that public golf was kind of lacking early on was there did you find in your research that there was a reason that public golf courses were lacking in the city 
Yeah, there was a there was a couple of good reasons, and I hopefully called out a couple of people <laughs> should be called out on that. You know, when you again, if you go back to that time period in 1890s and and 1900, public parks were not a big deal for for any place, not just Cincinnati. It was, you know, people were trying to stay alive and and keep from getting cholera and everything else, and and uh, no one had recognized that public parks were really a big part of of what the city should be. And uh, we had a couple at that time, uh, small ones, and uh, uh, we end up uh, having a luck of a draw where a famous landscape architect misses his train connection in Cincinnati, calls up a friend that he knew from Europe and stays. And uh, and we end up now with Bernard Woods and a, uh, Eden Park and a couple of other places that started. But no golf courses. I mean, we were just lucky enough to have parks, much less golf courses. So uh, what they did is in, in the early times, they they went to uh, Burnett Woods or they went down to Fernbank Park and they allowed people to buy a club membership. Uh, and, and it actually was run by a public, you know, private clubs on public property. And uh, that happened until just about the turn of the century. So, uh, and then they got kicked out. Uh, the, the park people said, you know, we don't like flying golf balls and picnickers and everything else, you know, who are using this park. And uh, so they kicked the golf courses out, Clifton Golf Club and Fernbank Golf Club. And they had to go some other place. And, and um, uh, it was uh, maybe another 10 or 12 years before Avon Fields came along. That was the first, 1914. So it uh, took quite a while. And they were not the first west of the Alleghenies. That's been another urban legend that we've kind of dispelled. <laughs> uh, they were really not very early. By 1914, when we got Avon Fields, uh, Toledo already had three public courses. Indianapolis had three public courses. So, you know, we were we were kind of slow on the uptake in Cincinnati. So, uh, Do you get to talk about Harmon Golf Club at all in that, Gary? We do talk about Harmon Golf Club. That was really, if you want to consider, probably the earliest public golf course in the region. And uh, uh, another interesting thing with Harmon that, uh, um, you know, how many parks and how many places he built around the country. I believe like 30 different states and parks and, and stuff. And uh, um, my uh, co-collaborator for a long time, Joff Hensley, still believes that that, that that might be a uh, Tillinghast course, believe it or not. There's there's enough evidence that it would be, you know, if we could find out a little bit more in deep, but the, the Tillinghast uh, uh, list of courses lists the Harmon Golf Club in Harmon, New York, and there is no Harmon Golf Club in Harmon, New York, because Joff Hensley drove, drove up and tried to find it. And uh, uh, we think that that might be the, the course up in Lebanon which would be cool. Yeah. I've definitely heard that rumor, especially uh, being a part of that group up there. It's the thing you have to notice about Avon fields and Harmon is these greens are circular and they are very tiny and I do not hit them in regulation. <laughs> you don't get many three putts. That's the good news. You know, <laughs> that doesn't eliminate that. That's a very fair point. <laughs> No, I, I, I love going, I've course rated Harmon and I've, 
officiated there, but I've never gone up and played there, uh, you know, for fun. And, uh, but I, I like being there. I feel like I'm touching history when I'm there. And, uh, uh, and of course, uh, Dick James took such good care of it. And for many, many years, and was a real tribute to the city of Lebanon. And, uh, but no, it's, it's a great place to be. If you'd like to go back to old time golf or Fernbank, if you ever go, have you ever been played on Fernbank? You might have to wear uh, a helmet when you go around the course, but yes. Well, that's true. You know, but I think <laughs> down there and you cross fairways a couple of times right. and you feel, you know, you feel like you should be uh, back in the 1920s, but it's fun. It is I fun. Like, yeah, I enjoy it. So I don't want to ignore a little bit. You kind of mentioned you do some course rating. Uh, before we get back to the book, you do, you are a board member with the GCGA. Talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the work you do with them. Well, as a, you know, kind of a follow-up to the one uh, podcast you did with Todd Johnson. Of course, the GCGA has been around since 1905 under different names. And uh, with the, basically our mission is to promote the game and, uh, take care of all the tournaments, take care of all the handicaps, all of the things that have to happen to provide a, a resource for tournament golf. But in addition to that, we uh, really promote the game. And uh, we do a lot with our 1905 tour and uh, bringing uh, young people into the game and introducing to them, starting sometimes seven, eight years old, with allowed to uh, play in some tournaments where their, ca- their parents can caddy and uh, very low key, but where they can start to get a, a feel for the game and uh, which has just been a great success. And, uh, and then of course, running all of our, our city tournaments that have been going on for, uh, you know, a hundred years or more. And uh, so it's been a very worthwhile uh, endeavor with GCGA. It's a great organization. Todd runs a great Kevin Stanton, Teresa Silvers. They're all uh, super people that love the game, but also, uh, really have a good feel and a good relationship with all the courses in our area. So it's been a great experience. Gary, I don't know if many people understand how important history is to the golf in this area, but can you explain why what you are trying to achieve with this book is so important to the golf, not only in Cincinnati, but golf as a sport and golf as a part of our society? Well, you have to think back and go back to Scotland in the mid-1800s. By 1850, the game was on its heels. I mean, literally, the the game was going to fold up its tents. There was only 17 golf courses left in the British Isles. And um, the reason being was the golf ball. The golf ball was called a feathery. Uh, The the shepherds and all of the people who in, in the townspeople were still playing with wooden golf balls. But uh, the people who were playing the game a little bit more seriously were using a feathery golf ball. And that was took, uh, I don't know how much effort, but it was making the cost of the golf ball just go out, you know, off the, off the uh, scale. So um, the game was cl- clubs, uh, clubs and courses were closing. And then all of a sudden this uh, uh, missionary who had been in the uh, Far East in India, ships a statue back from uh, India wrapped in this little box of gutta percha. And gutta percha was a gum from a, a tree in Malaysia. And he had the good sense and he was a golfer and he happened to live in St. Andrews and, and figured out that maybe he could mold a golf ball out of this stuff. And um, 
basically saved the game, you know, and it just the equivalent of a, a, a golf ball costing $10, which you could lose. And then in, in playing this game where the ball was basically disappear, these feathery golf balls would disappear after three or four holes. Now you have a golf ball that'll last a whole round or two or three and uh, it hit it farther and you can hit it more accurately. And the, all of a sudden the game took off. And by the 1890s, the game is just, you know, spilling over the its banks and into Australia and Canada and the United States and whatever. So the game was on its heels. All of a sudden we get, we get it at the right time. This United States and, and our region in particular, Cincinnati was a, a big city at that time. And, and uh, it all comes in here and, and uh, a, a host of Scottish immigrants come in to teach the game. Some names that are familiar to people now, Bendelo and, you know, and all of the, all of the people that came over and, uh, and it just took off. It, it struck a nerve with American citizens. And, and uh, uh, now you'd have to say America is really the kind of the hotbed of, of golf in the world, you know, and, uh, um, and how all that happened in a hundred years is kind of, you know, amazing, you know, uh, and why a game, you know, why, why not something else? Why, you know, and uh, so you needed people now who never had leisure time before, you know, who, who are, uh, you know, building a middle class in the United States that's being built before other countries. Um, you know, companies like Procter & Gamble that, you know, profit sharing, all of these things, all these forces that are going in all different directions. And, uh, and that's what makes it really the history compelling. It's, it's a city history as much as it is a, uh, you know, a game history. And uh, interesting, a little anecdote on that is that uh, the, the guy who invented the, the uh, gutta percha golf ball, the person who was the, the missionary, was a, a James Patterson, and uh, his brother was named John Patterson. John Patterson uh, tried to sell these golf balls in Edinburgh. He ran three different operations trying to make money out of it. Couldn't do it. Decides to immigrate, emigrate to the United States in 1815. Comes to Cincinnati, and uh, works for his cousin, who's a grocer here. And uh, never makes a golf ball. This is 40 years before the first golf's played here. We got the guy who invented the gutta percha golf ball sitting in Cincinnati, and we didn't know it. So that's one of the things that you find out when you're doing these researches, and just you know, it's kind of interesting stuff to see how Cincinnati's tied to to the game. But that's that's basically where you know when I started writing the book was uh, making it more just a history of who won the Mets and who won this and who did that, you know, I wanted to kind of uh, mesh it with what was going on in the city at the time, which I think makes it a little bit more interesting read. Absolutely. Now you, we were lucky enough, Gary sent us a few little things before we got to this interview. And one of the things that kind of, uh, I noticed when you sent it was, you talked about these ghost courses that have been plowed under, um, you know, throughout the early history of golf here in the city. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what those are, where they might be and, and, and everything like that? Yeah. That's a, one of the chapters is called ghost courses. And I think, uh, as, as I said last week, I located the 20th one that I didn't know existed <laughs> up in college Hill. And, uh, again, uh, uh, 
it took a lot of uh, newspaper uh, uh, research, took a lot of help from the Cincinnati Library. There's a fellow down there named Stephen Headley who has been a, just a great help uh, with us and, and who's an ex-caddy and plays the game himself and and uh, happens to be in the genealogy and local history department. And and he could always steer steer us in the, in the right directions. But, uh, um, you know, they, they go all the way back to the very, very first course here in Cincinnati, at least historically. And that's down on the corner of uh, Edwards Road and Grandin Road, which is in uh, Hyde Park. It's down the road from the Cincinnati Country Club at the present. It's on the old Shillito, I believe, uh, estate. And they had uh, nine holes. I got We got a picture of it in the book of, of the, uh, the layout. And uh, someone laid that out in 1894. This was actually before Cincinnati started. It was just a bunch of guys that uh, laid it out. So obviously it's some beautiful homes on that lot right now and in Hyde Park. And, um, uh, but there's just loads of them everywhere. You know, my own course, Makatiwa, started out uh, on the Xavier campus in, at, uh, as Avondale Golf Club uh, in 1897. And uh, uh, it was basically down there where the uh, the soccer stadium is on the corner of Victory Parkway and, and Dana Avenue and went up towards Win, uh, Woodburn. And uh, uh, Victory Parkway was not there at the time. That didn't get built till later on. But um, so that, that's too is now a ghost course. And I, you know, like I said, we've identified 20 of them around the country or around the, around the tri-state area, uh, that are now shopping centers. Uh, you know, if you go up on the Northeast corner of Seymour and Reading road, where there's a shopping center and, and, uh, right up from Akatiwa, Caddy corner to Woodward, that used to be Hillcrest country club, beautiful country club that was, built in the 19, uh, 1919, I believe, and uh, um, now plowed out there. I remember playing there as, uh, you know, in the 1970s when it was down to nine holes and the city took it over for a little while. And uh, uh, of course, even the, most recently, you have Crest Hills sitting out there at the corner of Galbraith and Ridge Road that uh, started off as Ridgewood, you know, back in 1926 and then became Crest Hills. Um, so there's, there it's a little more evident that it's a ghost course, but most of the time you just see blacktop and, and, and homes and shopping centers. Now, was there one, my dad always told me about, is there, was there one in the three rivers area? Yes, there was. And it was called three rivers country club. And it had 450 members at one time, believe it or not. And wow. then the depression hit, uh, right down there on uh, Bridgetown road near Cleves uh, down uh, and uh, uh, actually built on an old farm that was uh, owned by, I believe, Benjamin Harrison, President Benjamin Harrison. And uh, uh, they, they were very successful. And uh, Marty Cavanaugh Sr., the guy who ended up being big at the Hamilton County Parks, that was one of his first jobs would be to pro there. But yeah, uh, the city was going to buy that. When it went under as a country club, the city of Cincinnati was going to buy it because they had nothing out on the west side. And and they determined it was just too hard to get to. So they, they uh, gave up on the deal. So um, became another ghost. So one we just found uh, last week that's actually Steve Headley found. It was in College Hill. 
and uh, the, it was a college hill golf club right up at the yeah i haven't figured out where it is yet and I, I won't figure it out by the time the book's going to press but uh either right up there where belmont and hamilton avenue kind of go off in a different direction up to north bend i know it was off of north bend road so it either could have been over closer to kipling or uh, or down close to belmont down to near aiken high school so uh, so uh, but that ran for two years they had a caddy strike. <laughs> they were long enough. They were in a, they were in a business long enough to have a caddy strike for a year, and uh, so it was a it was a going concern. But uh, uh, but they're all over the place. You know, we we are going to have a map in the book to locate where they are. Do we know the reason for the caddy strike? Yeah, uh, they uh, they were getting ten cents around, and they wanted twenty cents around. <laughs> <laughs> And, I, and that was in uh, 1890, uh, 1898, I think. But uh, I was going to tell him that at Clovernuck, I was caddying it in 1959 for a dollar and a quarter a loop. So uh, <laughs> the prices hadn't gone a whole lot up on the hill. <laughs> they were able to keep they were able to keep the cost down up uh, up that direction. But uh, no, that the ghost courses is a, a cool chapter, and it. Again, the, the the whole concept of ghost courses, the name came from my friend Joff Hensley, who, uh, you know, I w- wish I had come up with that name, but uh, I've confiscated it for the book. Say, so how many of these ghost courses did you get to play? Uh, well, I did play that Hillcrest one, and I have played at Crest Hills. See, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think most of them had, were gone by the time I was messing around. You had one up in Homestead. I grew up in Mount Healthy, uh, and uh, there was one right up on on Hamilton Avenue, just a little bit north of the, the Home for the Blind. And uh, they apparently that was there when we moved there in '52, but uh, I don't remember it. So, um, uh, but I guess Hillcrest and Crest Hills, and uh, you know, I'd have to take a look at that list again. Um, but uh, most of them are concrete now. <laughs> Tom's played quite a few ghost courses as well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I play with the ghost sometimes. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that caught my eye, Gary, and especially with the whole, you know, especially with the NCAA now and the USGA, the whole image and likeness thing is is becoming – it was. It's always been a big deal, but it's it's even more a big deal now. Um, Aunt Kate is what they called her, Catherine Brophy. Can you tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, that was that's a great story, and and uh, she um, she was an Irish immigrant. She came over even in the eighteen nineties, maybe nineteen early nineteen hundreds, uh, to to be a nanny at one of the uh, families uh, here in the city, and uh, her. Uh, Maiden name was Cassidy. Catherine Cassidy was her name. And uh, she uh, meets uh, Ed Brophy. Ed Brophy is one of the three Brophy brothers who, again, are another interesting sidebar story. But uh, uh, they're caddies at uh, at Cincinnati Country Club, live in O'Brienville, and, and uh, all three of them end up becoming professionals. But Ed uh, uh, meets her. Uh, they fall in love. Uh, he becomes the um, uh, the pro at one of the ghost courses, Elberon Country Club, and uh, and then when they build uh, Western Hills Country Club, 
Uh, he and Kate move over there. He becomes the head pro at Western Hills and stays there into the 1950s. So, I mean, he's long-term and, and great, uh, you know, name at Western Hills. But um, she never played the game before. He teaches her. And uh, she plays out of Avon Fields and uh, actually played her first time. She played in a match. She played from West, Western Hills. Loses this great match against one of the uh, – city's great women golfers and and uh uh it, it's a match from 1922 i believe it is 1922 women's met and she she uh scores a, a stymie you know basically chips her ball over the top of another ball and into the cup to keep the match going loses it then in three extra holes but the long and the short of it is is you now have this uh, irish immigrant gal who's uh kind of uh elbowing in to the great women golfers of the 1920s. And um, so she wins then the Met three times from Avon Fields and uh, uh, plays in the Ohio Amateur a couple of years. And, uh, and then in 19, I want to say 26 or 27, she goes up to uh, Akron to play in the Ohio Amateur and uh, looks for her name on the parent sheet and it is, it's missing. And uh, she is then informed that she is uh, considered a, a professional because the previous Christmas, uh, she allowed a picture of herself to um, be in a, a newspaper advertisement for Burkhart clothing. And uh, she was never compensated for it, only just allowed to put her picture in there. Uh, and because of that, the uh, Ohio Am uh, Golf Association considered her a professional. And... Uh, and the backdrop of this, this is going on everywhere, by the way, that the whole idea of professionals versus amateurs is a big story in the 1920s and the USGA and who's naming who a professional, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the long and the short of it is, is that uh, immediately there's a big firestorm from Cincinnati and Western Hills Country Club and and uh, getting affidavits to, to prove that she... Uh, was not compensated. And, and then finally they came out and said, well, you can't, you can't play because your husband's a professional, which was, you know, <laughs> so they were looking for every reason they could to keep her off the first tee. And finally, uh, the USGA backed up the OGA. And the long and the short of it is, is that uh, she was sent home and uh, not able to play in the Ohio amateur. And um, it, there was a, a lady who uh, is, her name's in the book. I'm not going to mention it, that, uh, that uh, was really the the person who was making all of this happen. She was from Cincinnati also, and uh, the Cincinnati papers then just really laid it on that uh, you know how this was unfair. And uh, but it, unfortunately, uh, she had to become a professional. And here's the now oh, there is no women's professional tour. <laughs> There's no place to make money unless you can find a job teaching or something. She puts a driving range in her side yard, starts teaching uh, people from the western side of town. Uh, eventually, uh, within a year or two later, Woodland Golf Club is built. If anybody you played Woodland, and Miss um, uh, Lewis from the Woodland Country Club or Golf Club at that time calls her up and asks her to become a professional, which was really a unbelievable at that time to give a woman a job at that time. They just had gotten their vote, you know, like five years earlier. And uh, so she became a woman professional there. And um, 
uh, and did that for a couple years and then moved back to Western Hills and became the assistant to Ed and the caddy master and uh, just had a great career in golf from that point on. She just, you know, as a teacher and mentor and, and whatever. And, and uh, um, but nobody knows what, what was sticking in somebody's crawl to, uh, you know, not allow her to play. And, uh, but it, it was some of the, some of the things that were happening in golf were not pleasant, you know, back in those days. So that was one of them. But uh, the Brophy family, she of course was a, an in-law, but the three Brophy boys, they, uh, they had great histories in golf also in Cincinnati. And now they've got the Brophy Trophy. Is that correct? Yeah, the Brophy Trophy, the women's uh, met. Uh, it's uh, given to the the, te- the team of four players who have the lowest score. Uh, you know, lowest total, uh, I don't know if it's net score or, or gross score, but uh, to honor the club that uh, has the four best scores uh, in, in total at, at the women's met. So, uh, um it's great to keep her name there. And then hopefully again, the book's going to keep her name out there and, and people are going to know who Kate Brophy was, you know? So. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's the first time I've ever heard about any of it. And I, like I said, I grew up playing Woodland. It's a, it's a good little course, especially if you're learning the game. So it was really yeah. neat to see that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's lots of them out there. There's lots of, you know, um, not to give the whole book away, but, but you, know, <laughs> right. you know, you know, you're talking about, you know, uh, how do you do the research? Well, I was waiting for some other information. I thought, you know what? I didn't do anything on the high school champions from 1929 to the start of the state Ohio championship starting 26. And so I had 34 years and I did the research and found the stuff from the Ohio state high school association. And, and there were four schools that, um, that, uh, produced, uh, state champions. Uh, and I'll mention them. There was Hughes High School and Reading High School, believe it or not, and St. Xavier High School and Hamilton High School. Those four schools were able to get to state championships during that period with some pretty good golfers. And there was a young man on the Hamilton team and who also won the medalist honor named John Zoller, Z-O-L-L-E-R. And um, so I figure, who's John Zoller? So I just called up to Hamilton High School uh, one day and, and got a nice young lady who helped me find some yearbook information about him and started going down Google and doing all the research and, and things like that. And here John Zoller was, uh, it was 1942, won the state championship in, at Hamilton High School, the, the medalist. He was a low an- individual, gets a golf scholarship to Ohio State and starts engineering school. Uh, after one year, he goes into the army in 1943 and serves in uh, Europe. Uh, uh, did a lot of combat and uh, went over and was part of the uh, operation that freed some of the uh, uh, the camps over there, the the concentration camps. And uh, comes back to the United States, goes back to Ohio State, uh, finishes his degree and gets his, keeps his scholarship at Ohio State. Plays. Uh, one, at one time, he was number three in third in third place in the NCAA uh, uh, national championship. Good, great offer. And then I kind of lose him, and I kind of skipped over him in, for this period of time from when he graduated from college until he takes a job about ten years later as the superintendent at Eugene, Oregon Golf Club. 
And uh, so he goes out there with his wife. And uh, uh, the long and short of it is he, he, from that job, he goes down to Monterey and becomes the superintendent of Monterey Peninsula Golf Club, which is a great, great track out there. Um, gets hired then as the director of golf for Pebble Beach. So he's, he's out there and uh, at Pebble Beach as a director of golf and works there for six or seven years and then goes over and becomes the executive director. He's the Todd Johnson of the Northern California uh, Golf Association and uh, with 140,000 members, uh, supervises and helps design uh, the course at Poppy Hills. Uh, which was then, you know, on the on the rotation for the uh, AT and T for a while, uh, and uh, then gets involved with the first first tee, um, gets honored with the Donald Ross Award, and I've got a picture of him in the book with uh, Jack Nicholas and uh, Robert Trent Jones and Pete Dye and uh, George Bush. I mean, you, you name, the list of people who have won this award is, is just like the uh, Hall of Fame of golf. And he wins it and, and is honored as the Renaissance man of golf because he's way ahead of his time on water distribution on courses. So here's this guy who's started off as a caddy at Hamilton Elks. Um, as a little kid, he would go with his brother and his brother tended the sheep at Hamilton Elks, the, the, the sheep they used to keep the rough cut. And uh, uh, that's how he started in the game, goes to Hamilton High School uh, and works his way through to become, now they have a national scholarship at first tee in his name, you know, and um, it's kind of amazing. And I didn't even know who this guy was. I was just happened to be looking through something and find his name. So, you know, another little treasure trove. You know. The quiet ones are the ones you got to watch out for, Gary. It, isn't that the truth? That's <laughs> <laughs> I was getting ready to ask you if you knew what his home course was, but I think Hamilton Elks pretty much sums it up. Yep. Yep. And that's Said a Donald Ross, that's a Donald Ross course too. Pretty sure, isn't it? Well, there's some, there's some uh, questions about that in okay. the book, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, um, uh, there's, there's a guy named Bill Jackson who did a lot of the work at Hamilton Elks and who did Camargo and was a pro at Camargo for 20 some years. And uh, um, I did some research about Bill Jackson and I talked to an old superintendent that's long retired. And I asked him about Bill Jackson and, and I said, have you ever, did you ever see him? He says, well, all I remember is he always wore a white shirt and tie whenever he was out on the court, even though he was a superintendent and a pro. And um, he said, we had a problem at Lasanaville one year, and I think he said number six. He said number six green, we couldn't get grass to grow. And he came out, and he did something. He went over here, pulled something up, you know, brought back some grass from somewhere else and put it down there, and he said, we never had a problem again. And he was the guy that everybody called in the city when they had grass problems, you know. And uh, so he was, he was uh, special. He did, you know, he built one of the courses at Olympia Fields up in Chicago. So he was no tiker by any stretch and uh, uh, built Summit Hills. He was also the pro or the uh, designer of the Summit Hills Country Club. So, um, but whether Donald Ross was there or not, I don't, you know, there are a lot of people that say he was, and I, I can't prove him yes way or, or not, not the other, but, uh, um, you know, I know, I know Bill Jackson was there and, uh, there's a picture of him in the book with uh, some pretty strong players and, that he played with back in the day. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so, Gary, you talk, when you talk, I've heard you talk about the book a few times here, and you say we. Um, can you talk to us maybe about some of the people who have helped you along the way? Yeah, a great story and a great question. Uh, one was John Fisher III. I happened to meet him way early on the project, and he, like I said, he was uh, someone I tried to emulate as far as the writing styles and whatever. But um, Todd introduced uh, me to Joff Hensley about four four years ago, and uh, uh, Joff, of course, was at the pro at Coldstream for many many years, and uh, I knew him from doing my own research that he had won the Met, won the Junior Met, was, you know, won a lot of Southern Ohio PGA stuff, had played nationally in Opens, and and uh, and uh, I know he was at UC the same time I was, because I remember reading about him, you know, on the golf course in the in the uh, school paper, and and uh, we both caddied at Cloverdale. But anyway, Joff and I then, for the next three years, partnered up, um, and we had hoped to really make this one big book. But uh, Joff's, uh, Joff's vision and my vision were kind of separating. I was getting more into the weeds, like these stories that I'm talking about. And Joff's, Joff's uh, goal and, and his, uh, his uh, really his, the way he wanted to write the book was a tribute to the game of golf as he knew it and, uh, and how it had treated him and uh, the gift it gave him. And uh, so uh, I'm hopeful he's writing the introduction to my book. And uh, I'm hoping he'll give me the same opportunity to write the same end of his book. And uh, so we shared all the research. Like I said, some of the things like ghost courses and, and whatever of, of, are Joff's ideas, you know, that I was able to uh, take care, you know, take with me. And uh, but we're still great friends and I still see him over at Ivy Hills. And uh, like I said, I'm hoping that uh, maybe the fact that we were working together so much and I kept pulling in one direction to, you know, make this a deep, dark history. And, um, you know, it's going to free him up to, to write the book he wanted to write. And, uh, so looking forward to reading it. So, but other people, like I mentioned, Steve Headley at the library, uh, I've talked to a lot of interesting people, Tom Bendelow's grandson, uh, who's down in, uh, uh, Hilton head area helped me out with a lot of stuff. Uh, Robert White, who was the first pro at Cincinnati Country Club back in 1896. His uh, grandson, is a, is a Skip Wallace, is an architect down in Charleston. Got to talk to him. Talked to Princeton University golf coach about William Cooper Proctor and what was going on in the 1880s. He went did a lot of research for me in the Princeton University archives and um, all the people at those high schools I mentioned, those four high schools, they were couldn't have been nicer getting me stuff. I was just, I got a big long list of people and I hope I didn't forget somebody <laughs> that uh, some just contributed one picture. Some contributed uh, or stayed with me the whole thing. So uh, can't do it by yourself. That's for sure. You got that right. Anybody who feels free to contribute, you take all the help you can get. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, it's, you know, I was getting phone calls from people that I never thought I would ever talk to. And I was just actually, uh, I was on the uh, phone and, and emailing with Tom Strange a couple of weeks ago. And Tom sent me this, this scrapbooks from his dad, uh, or excuse me, Alan Strange, excuse me, for his dad, Tom Strange. And of course, his, Alan's twin brother is Curtis Strange. And uh, uh, their dad was one of the great amateur golfers here in the city. And I had no pictures of him as a youth. I had 
pictures of him as a pro in out in Virginia. Um, but uh, Alan was uh, kind enough to send his scrapbooks to me, and I was able to get a couple pictures. So uh, um, a lot of people, like I said, uh, have their fingerprints all over this thing. Was that interesting to you or surprising at all about how much interest was sparked by you asking all these questions to various people throughout the process? It did. And, uh, you know, whenever I would mention it at a, you know, around the uh, table and, and I met, they were probably getting tired of me trivia <laughs> with all this trivia because I, I'd get so excited about a story and I'd write about it, on, you know, the night before and then I couldn't wait to share it. And uh, so there's probably a lot of people that are uh, probably uh, sick of it by now, but um, but I was surprised about it. I was, you know, for people my age, and I'm 75 now. People my age, a lot of these names are people who were stars when I was caddying. So I remember reading their name in the paper like I would have Ted Klazuski or you know uh, Johnny Temple or something like that. And uh, so there's going to be a nostalgia portion of this i think for people up in my age group that that'll come into play and um but um i was surprised really with the you know uh, even some of the younger people were interested and uh so it's that's what i'm hopeful for going forward yeah as soon as this book comes out i'm going to be all over it say <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite courses in the area Oh, wow. Well, there's, you know, always the, the big ones that uh, I think I've played every course in the area. So that's between the course rating and, and playing. I've, I've been on all of them, but I, you know, I, you know, when you talk about Camargo and, and Coldstream and, and um, uh, the, the courses, you know, those two probably Kenwood, those three probably stand head and shoulders above as far as, not just the, the layouts, but probably the history and, and uh, everything. And then you've got, a, uh, you know, the, the Makatiwas and Hyde Parks and the, uh, the, the, that group of, and then, you know, from, from a public course point of view, I love Stone Lake. I love, uh, love going out there. I love what he did, you know, to build the course and the research he did and, and the Redan holes and all of the different things that you get, you know, get to experience out there that you don't get to experience on many, you know, public courses. Uh, TPC, of course, is a great track and heritage and four bridges. Well, you know, there's just a lot of fun places to play in the city. So uh, um, that's the great thing about the game. You know, we, you know, you, you and I can't stand on at home plate and try to hit a home run over the green monster, but, you know, we can stand on the first tee at St. Andrews or, or, you know, uh, Cincinnati Country Club and, and be part of the history of what's what's going on in the game. And uh, um, and every round's different. Every weather day is different. So it's, that's what makes it, you know, a great game. Now, Gary, we ask all of our guests this, and I'm actually, I guess, first off, do you eat Skyline Chili? Oh, do I? Yes. What, what, <laughs> what is your Skyline order? <laughs> you can see my, you know, if you can see my build, you'd know. Uh it's the same order every time. I get the four-way onion, uh, two regular conies without the cheese, but extra mustard. And then I take some of the cheese off of the four-way and put it on the because I don't like a whole lot of cheese on my conies. So that's that's and a lot of hot sauce. So uh, now that's pretty much my standard order. Very innovative. I'm a big fan. <laughs> well, 
I've been eating it. The one in Oakley, I've, I think I started eating there in, in the sixties in or whatever. So it's been a while. Well, Phil, I don't want to hold you back. Do you have any other questions to ask him? He wealth of knowledge. That's all I have to say. I really enjoyed this. And thank you so much for all the information you've been willing to share with us, Gary. Well, I really appreciate the time and, and uh, it's, it's been a great project. I've enjoyed every minute of writing it. I don't know what I'm going to do here now. But I guess I get, I got some projects here at the house probably are backing up that I, that my uh, wife has been kind enough to let me uh, put off for a while, but uh, no, this has been great. And uh, I'm looking forward to letting people see it and hopefully enjoying it. And, and, uh, um, Somebody else can do the 1960 and on. <laughs> I was going to ask if there was going to be a sequel, but I think I just got my answer. <laughs> It'd be a fun one to write. You know, that's what I put in the epilogue. It would be, there's a lot of great names, Wolfenheim and, you know, all those names that, uh, that would be in the next one. And uh, so it's, there's a great story there to be told. So if people want to, first of all, if I guess, is there an expected release date? And when when it does come out, where can people expect to pick up the book? Well, uh, I'm going to do a couple of things. One is, that, uh, number one, it's probably about a four months to get it through publishing and on the shelves. So uh, if we make a decision next week on our publisher, and I think we have, uh, we're, we're probably talking late summer. Um, with COVID, uh, it's changed a lot of things. Um, you know, I was hoping to sell most of it in the pro shops because I get to just about all the pro shops, you know, through GCGA and, uh, you know, maybe six or eight here and five here and whatever, and maybe a couple hundred at some of the clubs and whatever. So, um, uh, so I'm going to do that. And, uh, and then hopefully uh, Joseph Beth and then Amazon eventually will, you know, be involved. So we're going to get it out there and, and, uh, uh, and then try to do some stuff nationally, even though it's a regional book. You know, I think there might be some. I'm trying to, you know, I was talking to, to uh, the people at Ohio State Golf Association of, you know, if this is a good template, if this looks like a good uh, way to do it, you know, maybe people in Dayton and people in Toledo and Cleveland and whatever. There's a lot of these books out there, regional books, but uh, uh, this was a pretty easy one to write and maybe, you know, other people would be interested in doing the same thing and preserving that heritage. You know, I'm in the golf heritage society and, and uh, that's what we're trying to do is make sure that uh, the history of the game stays out there. Well, we're looking forward to it. Um, we'll make sure to post it on our social media. So for anyone listening, um, just keep a lookout, especially late summertime, we'll make sure to post it, but uh, we do appreciate you coming on and uh, best of luck with the rest of the process. Well, I sure appreciate being here, Tom and Phil, and uh, good luck to you guys. We'll see you out there on the first tee somewhere, huh? <laughs> All right. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, you very much. You got that right. Okay. Hey, everyone. Tom here. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Second Shot All-American Golf Podcast. Please don't forget to like our Facebook page as well as follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SSAA Golf Pod. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach us at secondshotallamericanpod at gmail.com. And if you could, just please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll see you for the next episode. Thanks, guys.